Amen. Good morning. As they were singing that song, I Surrender, I think about Jesus coming from Jerusalem, making that three-day journey on his way to Samaria. I must need go to Samaria to meet this Samaritan woman who had basically given up on life, basically given up on any opportunity to have a fulfilled life, just to have a decent life with all of the baggage she had carried. And she had basically given up hope. But Jesus makes this three-day journey, and he meets this Samaritan woman at this well. Of course, she comes in the heat of the day by herself, and Jesus initiates the conversation like he initiates any conversation in our lives in order for us to surrender to him. And as they begin to talk, he he begins to whet her appetite about this living water, this, this spiritual water, this water that leads to salvation. And as she begins, he begins to reel her in and she begins to inquire about this living water before we can enter into the kingdom of heaven before we can ever experience this living water. He says, go get your husband. Change the entire conversation, but really changed it for the good because she says, I, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, being the gentleman uh, of grace and truth, he says, I know you don't. You've had five and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. She begins to say, hey, you must be a prophet. The prophet, the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, not the Tahib that the Sumerians spoke of. And so she wanted to ask him a question now that she knows he's a prophet. Hey, do we worship on Mount Gerasim or should we worship in Jerusalem? So he's breaking her prism, her preconceived ideas of thought down to the truth. And he says, Woman, I don't know what you guys are worshiping up on that mountain, but salvation, the revelation of Jesus Christ has come to the Jews. And I have given them that opportunity to to spread the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ into the whole world. That was their opportunity. They failed at that in general. When we are born again, that's our opportunity. We have a charge to keep to spread the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the nations. And he begins to tell her about her past life. And it hit her. And she began to say, look, she forgot all about that natural water that she had been coming to get. And she begins to inquire of this spiritual water. And Jesus says in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. By this time, his disciples have come back. And Jesus says in verse 27, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled the matzo. They were amazed. They were astonished that this rabbi... This sage would be speaking 
to a woman, and we talked about that, not only a woman, a woman of her statue that no one wanted to speak to. And it was probably awkward for the disciples to see Jesus speaking to her, but not for Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't ashamed of what he was doing because he was doing everything in love. The disciples, just by knowing, just by the little time that they had spent with Jesus, knew what kind of man Jesus was because it says, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? This shows their trust in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. She's now concerned about this eternal living spiritual water that only Jesus can give. And my question to everyone listening this morning or watching, do you remember when you left your water pot? Whatever it was that you had put all of your trust in, that you were concerned about, that you cared about, do you remember when you left that? from the call of Jesus Christ to know him, when you had to surrender that water pot, that thing, that something that you thought may have validated you and made you who you were, that you could not live without, that you have maybe have strove all of your life to get, and once you, you, you got it, it didn't satisfy. And you finally surrendered whatever it was, to Jesus Christ. I hope this morning that every one of us, we've done that. We've let everything go and said, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Uh, Luke says this in Luke 14, verses 27 and, uh, 26 and 27, and then verse 33. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, In his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. People always say this when I read this verse or a verse similar to it. People like to split hairs about disciple or believer, but I believe there's no hair splitting there. I believe both entails that. I believe if you're born again, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. My opinion, you can't be, a born, be born again and not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he says in verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, your love and commitment towards me And my agenda for your life, it should be paramount over any and other relationships. But the good part is you don't have to worry about not being fulfilled because Jesus is saying, if you follow me, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. If you follow me, all of those other relationships will be fulfilled also. Because Jesus Christ, he wants us to thrive in this life. Jesus does not hold back any good thing from his children. 
He wants us to follow him first and foremost, and then he will deliver. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 puts it this way. For we are his workmanship. I tell you guys all the time that word workmanship is poema. We're not an essay that's structured and have to stay in a lane of making sure we're okay. But we're, we're his poetry. And he expresses himself through us. By our giftings and abilities, he lets us run as long as we are in his will. He has good works for us. He goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He wants, again, he wants us to thrive. And the best way that we can thrive is to walk in the good works of Jesus Christ. If we go outside those boundaries to any other thing, we cannot thrive in this life. We cannot be what the Lord has called us to be in this life. That's what he's trying to teach this Samaritan woman. It says the woman then left her water pot and faith, truly what faith is, is always action. You must be moving. You have to move with faith. James says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And I want to say this. I should have said it from the beginning. Jonathan, you weren't the only one, Pastor Jonathan, to have a good day yesterday. That was a great day. The men's breakfast, I I continue to say come out. That was a blessing David shared. Game day was great. It could have been better if I would have won. I let a little nine-year-old beat me in the game we were playing, Jonathan's daughter. But it was a great day. We had a great fun, fellowshipping. The lady, the woman, left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men. Now, notice how bold she has become because she's met the Savior. The Bible says the righteous shall be as bold as a lion. We have nothing to hide. Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? What catches my attention is her details that she gives. She tried to keep back so painfully towards Jesus, didn't want to allow him to to dissect her heart. She now freely shares. She doesn't care anymore because she's found the Messiah. I'm reminded when the Apostle Paul was exhorting the church in Corinth, and he had to do that a lot, about these false apostles And then Paul says, I want you guys to forgive me right up front because I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to boast a little bit. And then he begins to boast, remember, of his infirmities. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity, my weaknesses. And that's what this woman is doing here. It's not that she was proud of what she had been and where she had came from, but she had met the Messiah now. All those things have changed. And her background, that's going, is going to be her testimony of the life-changing event which occurs when a person meets Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. 
things change. And she says in verse 30, they went out of the city and came to him. Can you imagine this large group of people of Samaritan men and women coming? In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. Probably hadn't eaten in two or three days. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Because all of a sudden, as Pastor Pastor Jonathan was saying, he said, even though he had expended himself from the men's breakfast until he laid his head on his pillow around probably 10, 1030, he told me he was energized. He felt well. And that's how you feel when you've been ministering and worshiping the Lord. Jesus Christ is rejuvenated. His energy has come back. I don't know if he... I don't usually, well, I've never drank an energy drink, but from what I hear, they're not good for you, but they do the job of giving you a little energy for a while. Well, Jesus is fulfilling his mission, and all of a sudden, he's reinvigorated. He's energized. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We know that work will be completed at the cross. It's all about being connected to the battery, that charger, and that charger is Jesus Christ. Jesus, we know his sustenance was obeying the Father's will. That was his food. If spiritual food had the same effect on us as physical food. And remember, once again, spiritual food is being obedient to the will of the Father. I wonder if we would be malnourished or hefty. Think about that. If we obeyed the Father as we should, what would it look like? Job 23, 12 puts it this way. Job says, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Wow. Jesus is saying, not only is obeying God more important, but Jesus is saying it's more satisfying when we obey God. It's some kind of spiritual thing that will invigorate us. It's some kind of spiritual thing that when Paul and Silas was in prison, after they had been beaten and chained, they could still sing praise songs. That's that good spiritual food that we should be eating every morning, afternoon, and evening. Verse 35, he says, do you not say, Jesus speaking, there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Because this was a proverbial and a popular saying, because as they said, these four months, we can relax. We can take it easy. Jesus says, no, we can't. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, lift up, look up and look. That's what he says at the fields. For they are already white for harvest. I believe the Samaritan people are coming. Look what's coming 
our way. As believers, do we look for those opportunities to share Christ? Are we cognizant that that's really a part of our ministry, wherever we go, whatever our occupation, whether it's school, work, any of those things? Our number one charge is to share Jesus Christ. Imagine these disciples have left Jesus at the well and they go into a town and no one in that town was affected by them. No one came back with them. Not a Samaritan boy, woman, or girl came back with them. Jesus meets this one Samaritan woman and an entire town comes out. That's affecting something and someone. And where we go, that's what we should be doing. At least trying. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's the goal. He says in verse 36, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Fruit here speaks of the new believer. That both he who sows, who shares that good news, and he who reaps those who see the the, the, the fruitation, what comes from sowing, he says, and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Uh, once again, the church of Corinth, they're bickering about, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow John. Paul says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed. As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's what matters. He says, So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters, they're one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We will be rewarded whether we see the harvest or not. Just minister. Let's be faithful of the calling the Lord has given us. Jesus says, I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Is he speaking of the patriarchs and prophets paving the way for the apostles? Is he speaking of John the Baptist and his disciples paving the way those six months earlier for Jesus and his disciples? I think he's speaking more of a principle here. If we would just share, the Holy Spirit will work. There's no problem with the Holy Spirit. There's an issue or there can be an issue with the vessel. But we must share. He says in verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, Middle East hospitality. You don't say no. 
It would have been rude for Jesus to leave. And many more believed because of his own word. Remember, Philip told Nathaniel that they had found the Messiah. Nathaniel's faith at that moment was based on Philip's testimony right then and there. And that's okay for a minute. Philip got began to get Nathaniel to move towards Christ. But it was Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit who makes the transaction happens. Not physically, we don't have to go to Christ. He didn't have to go to Christ. But as we share our testimony of what the Lord has done for us, and as that, that heart is open to faith, God then makes the transaction. That's why it says one man plants the other waters, but God gives the increase. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. He is the one who says, te telestai, paid in full, when we sincerely ask him to come into our lives. But none of that occurs unless there is someone to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that can happen. That's why Jesus is gently exhorting these boys. Why didn't you, why didn't you guys bring back anyone? Did you share with anyone? They're learning just like we are learning. He says in verse 42, then they said to the woman, and it's not to uh, denigrate her, but, but it's to show that even though it was her testimony that provoked them to come, the Lord has to speak when you've come, when you've shared. The Lord then has to speak to our hearts for the transaction for eternal life can ever happen. That's all they're saying. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. He's spoken to our hearts. That's what Jesus, that's the point he's making. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world is only spoken twice in the New Testament. And when he says the Savior of the world, that's everyone who would call upon his name to be saved. Equal Opportunity Savior. That's what he's come for. They embrace the salvation of the Jews. Now, after two days, they're in Samaria. It says, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country, Lydia. Lydia has to tell me that over and over again. Because at my house, a prophet has no honor in his own house. <laughs> but I know that's what the scripture says. John's, and, and he's just really stating that of what the synoptic gospel has said, because it says in Matthew, he's a little, a little bit more poignant on the issue. Matthew 13, 57 says this, so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Mark adds among his own relatives and his own household. Wow. My man Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. Those who know you the best dishonor you the most. 
They can't believe you pastor a church, you're teaching a Bible study, you're serving in the nursery, whatever it is. Not that dude, not that girl. That goes to the power of change through the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all of the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast, turning over the money changers table. And remember, the only reason Nicodemus had come by night to see him, because the scripture doesn't tell us, it just points that he did many other miracles, signs in his name. So he's doing all of these works and all of these wonders. It says he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. We're making progress. And there was a certain nobleman, an official of the royal court. He's there, probably serving under under, uh, Antipas. It says, whose son was sick at Capernaum. This is Jesus' home base at Capernaum. This is about an 18-mile trek for this nobleman to come to Cana. That's the setup. It says, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored. He begged him. And, and, And the structure of the sentence is he continued to beg, to plea, he's making with Jesus, to come down and heal his son. Who wouldn't do that? For he was at the point of death. All of the dignity this man may have possessed, he throws it out the window for his son to be healed. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people, now that caught my attention, you people, I forget the name of that movie. <laughs> the dude, it was a black dude and a white dude, they were standing beside each other. He said, you people, and the black guy turns around and said, what do you mean by you people? Well, that's why, probably why it caught my attention. But that's what he says here. The Holy Spirit says, unless you people. Is he speaking about the, the Galileans? Is he speaking about the Samaritan? No, Jesus Christ is casting a wider net here. He's speaking of all of those people who are wanting sign faith. I won't believe unless I see a sign. That's why he says, I'm grouping you people. You need a sign. Once again, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks' foolishness, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. This guy probably just goes over his head, the nobleman, all he's thinking about, please, I beg of you to heal my son. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus will use for our benefit, you guys, whatever it will take to bring us to him. All he wants us to do is come, whether it's despair, whether it's rejection, whether it's depression, whatever it is, he wants us to come to him. 
And that's truly what a sweet exchange is. When we come with all of our baggage that no one else wants to listen to, put up with, tired of, Jesus says, bring those things to me. I can do something about them. A man, a woman, uh, education, success of life, they can do nothing about that. Bring those burdens to me, and I can do something about it. Isaiah tells us he gives beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's a sweet exchange there. And that's what he's imploring this nobleman and all those that has signed faith to do. He says in verse 50, Jesus said to him, listen up, go your way. Your son lives. What does he do? So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. Jesus said, in effect, go about your business. He's there for business. He's a nobleman. He says, your son is fine right then and there. John says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. That's very important. Belief is a key feature in John's gospel. However, belief is not necessarily trust in Jesus Christ as being the Savior or the Messiah also. But when John uses the verb believe, Without any object to it, for instance, many people believed. He's describing saving faith there. Also, when he says many people believed in him, he's speaking of they have put their trust in the Messiah. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the, what the nobleman did, he believed at that very moment that his son was healed. That's as far as he had gotten. That's all he wanted to believe at the time. His son is healed. If he would have tripped from his chariot and fallen off and hit his head and he died, well, he helped his son out but he would open his eyes in hell because that's the belief he had just shown right there. Now, the casual reader would read this little couple of verses rushing out the door in the morning to go to work. I read my two chapters and they would just say, and you would think, that this nobleman hopped in his chariot because I believe he came in a chariot and as soon as he could and as fast as he could went to see his son. But that's not what the scripture says. He went on, go about your business, did the things the Lord had said, hey, go about your business, do what you're doing, going to do here. He stays over. He doesn't make his way home because we're going to see by the timing, he couldn't have gotten into his chariot and went home. It was a six-hour walk from Cana to Capernaum, about a two-hour drive, once again, by a chariot. 
That's why most scholars say he probably went on a chariot. Verse 51, watch closely. And as he was now going down, he spent the night. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. That wasn't enough for this man. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. Note the time of the healing. And they said to him yesterday, At the seventh hour, that would be 1 p.m., the fever left him. He trusted in the Lord. He had said, go your way. Go do your business, whatever you come here for. Verse 53, so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. What does he do now? And he himself believed. There's the transaction. No more law. Thinking of, oh, man, he healed my son. I believed in your word. No, 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 no. Now I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Remember, he had believed before, but he believed the word that he had spoken about his son. Now he believes in everlasting life that only Jesus Christ can give. And notice what it says, and his whole household. They believe the word that Jesus spoke then. He believes and he has this personal relationship with Jesus Christ now. It says, and he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign. He's did many miracles. But remember, John has chosen seven signs to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's God. Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We're not told what feast this is. Jesus goes into Jerusalem five times for five feasts. The last one, will, he will surrender his life. This is the second time. It says, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The first time he went up, was to claim ownership of that temple. They had turned it into a den of thieves, a place, a market to buy and sell things. He says, no, 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 no. This is my father's house. This is my temple. It should reflect me because it's a, a, it's a type. It's a symbol of me. So he claims the temple. He comes this time, the second time, to claim the Sabbath how they had distorted it and twisted it and changed it into something it should have never been. So he's coming back to do this, to to, to show you that the Sabbath shouldn't be a strict do or don't something. It should be for grace to worship God, to relax and enjoy him. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool. The first time, the only time the sheep gate is mentioned in the New Testament is mentioned twice in the book of Nehemiah as Jerusalem is building the wall, that 20, I think 23, 26 acre complex outside of the walls of that 23, 26 acre complex was the pool he's speaking of here, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda. Bethesda means house of grace, house of mercy. Having five porches, each pool 
was uh, trapezoidal uh, angles. And, I, and I had, it's been a long time since I've been to middle school, so I had to remember what trapezoid meant. So here it is, a flat closed shape having four straight sides with one pair of parallel sides. This is what this pool, these two pools look like. They said both pools together were about the size of a football field. The pool was 20 feet deep. And, and, and uh, John is going to tell us in verse 3, in these lay a great multitude of sick. Remember that, sick. We like to, I like to skip over sick people. Now, they probably wouldn't leper us because they couldn't have been there, but they had other infirmities. But sick people were there, and then blind, lame, paralyzed. Now, listen up with, for me. The earliest manuscripts omits these words. The New King James, the King James, they put them in, waiting for the moving of the water. These words were inserted later on, but the best, which is the earliest manuscripts, don't have these words there. Verse 4, the entire verse, passage of verse 4, is not in the earlier manuscripts, which if they're the earlier manuscript, they must be the what? Better manuscripts. Come on, stick with me. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That's what's happening here. But I'm going to read it because I have the New King James. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So periodically, the water would begin to bubble up, boil up, stir up. They found out it was an underground uh, stream that would come in and make the water do this. That's what's happening here. But the ironic part, around the temple, where there should be worshiping in and outside worshiping of God, outside the temple, they had this little new age, I would say, pool, this superstition that if you went down there and if you were the first one to go into the pool, whether you're lame, sick, paralyzed, whatever, you would be healed. This man, this paralyzed man, they didn't want him at the temple all of the so-called Pharisees and the religious leaders, they wouldn't even give him a second look because in Judaism, they said, if you had an illness, if you had an infirmity, if you were born paralyzed or whatever, God, you were a sinner, and God had turned his face away from you, and the wrath of God was upon you. So the only place that they heard anything would happen and they could really get a little relaxation and at least have a little hope was at these two pools here. Can you imagine the one who said, and I believe it was Jesus who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And he said, you guys, Of all of the trees you see here, eat freely. 
But this tree right here, come here, Adam, come here, Eve. Check it out. This tree right here, do not eat. Because the day you eat, the Hebrew says, dying, you shall die. And that's exactly what happened. Now Jesus Christ comes to this pool and he's walking around and he's seeing all of these people that have sicknesses and and paralyzed and lame and halt. And I believe he's weeping because he looks all the way back to the garden at that original sin of man. And he's saying, this is what sin will do to you. And so he comes and he visits there. Let me read in the NIV and also the ESV. Same thing. I'm just going to read one of them. They, like I told you, they completely skip verse four. This is how it reads. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. That's where we're at. Verse five. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity. 38 years. Wow. They said the normal lifespan in the Roman Empire, first century, was about 38 years. This man had been paralyzed, lame, halt, whatever, for 38 years. 38 years were the exact number that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. It says this in Deuteronomy. Chapter 2, verse 14. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the, man of, of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord has sworn to them. He keeps his word. He had been sick literally a lifetime. I don't even like being sick for a day. covid Thank God, those 10 days, whoo, Victor Allen Summerall were complaining left and right, <laughs> but God was in control. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew supernatural knowledge that he already had been in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? Come on, Jesus, what kind of question is that? Do you want to be made well? Of course he does. Of course this man wants to be made well. Remember, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed is there. A few of the illnesses. I don't know if this man looked as if he was okay laying there. He was content while being there. I don't understand that. I don't understand why Jesus would ask him that. But I do know this. A beggar can lose a lot of money if he becomes well. I'm just going to make this parallel, and I couldn't really get it on video. I got to Jordan too late. But I pulled up on YouTube, uh, the, the uh, San Francisco, where all the tent people dwell, and, and just the scenes, and in New York, how they, they just lie in the street while they're doing their drugs and They're just there in terrible condition. Do, and I know a lot of them, they have issues. You you might say they all do if they're doing that. 
But also, I watched the news. And I'll never forget about 10 years. This was 15 years ago when there were never anyone on the off-ramps with signs up asking for money. 15 years ago, that wasn't happening. But I remember it was happening in other states and cities. In 60 Minutes, I think it was, uh, did a show on that and how these people were making fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year doing that. And so, to be honest, pray for me because I can be jaded sometimes. To be honest, the first thing I see with the sign up, I know a couple of those dudes in Lawrenceville with those signs up, and they do pretty well. And I'm thinking, man, get a job. But my point is, even for them to be doing that, something has to be, there has to be a loose wire somewhere. And we need to be compassionate. I need to be compassionate. If I'm moved by the Holy Spirit to do something, I do it. I said all this to say this, but some people have no worries. They're okay right where they're at. That's why the Holy Spirit says, do you want to be made well? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. It's good he recognizes his illness, his problem, but he had a greater problem Because he was depending upon a man. So that's why he's at this pool dabbling in this superstitious event right here. I have no one to take me down to this magical pool. The man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. If this is not legalistic, if this is not the, a great definition of legalism, I don't know what is. Because once again, I say it for the third time, they could not go to the temple because they would have been dejected and rejected and people are looking at them sideways because you've got sin. So it has uh, dissolved down to being at this pool outside the city gates and they're waiting here. And the sad part, the ironic part, even though it's called house of grace, house of mercy, you have to be the first one to get into the pool. And the first one, I guarantee you, is the the first one that does get into the pool. He's the least person who really needs to get into the pool because that dude in the back who can't move, he'll never be the first one to get into the pool. Jesus comes. And sees all of those that's close to the edge of the pool. Jesus comes from heaven, comes to earth, and see all of these people who say, Lord, I cannot make it. I've tried having a good education. That does not fulfill me. I've tried having a great marriage, and that's good and well, but that doesn't lead to eternal life. I've tried drugs. I've tried alcohol. There's no fulfillment in any of those things. And I'm in the back, Lord, because everybody has rejected me. And he looks at that man, woman, boy, or girl. And says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to do something with you. That's the heart of the shepherd. 
that we love so dearly. That's the heart of the shepherd that will leave 99 to go and get one. I love that dude. And he knows I mean it sincerely. There's none greater than Jesus Christ. He keeps his eye on the least one that likely to succeed. He has his eye on that girl or guy. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately, you fails straightway. The man was made well. Now imagine that. I've had knee surgery. Lydia's did a complete knee surgery. Can you, can you imagine 38 years of atrophied limbs? Even with a knee surgery, you have to be up and moving constantly. Everything will begin to just wither away. At that moment, at the word of the Lord, he leaps, he jumps. I believe he does a cartwheel all around the pool. He's excited. Everyone there should have been excited. That's the power, the awesome power of an omnipotent God. The same, that was easy. The same God who spoke this world into existence. That was easy. There's no problem. There's no issue with him. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Now that's there for us also. Because what Jesus is asking him to do physically, now that he's healed him, he asked the believer to do spiritually. When we're born again, you're born again. I've saved you. Now walk. Walk. Don't walk the way you used to walk. Because that tells me it didn't take. Not that we're perfect, but begin to walk. And that's what we do when we're true believers. We will never get it right here. We will never do it perfectly here. But we walk in a sphere of righteousness. That shows you are, that the transaction worked well. Take up your bed and walk. When everyone saw this man walking, doing cartwheels, leaping, jumping, anyone that's ever been in a synagogue, anyone that's ever had the Torah read to them, they should have said, oh, I know what's going on here. I know what's happening here. I'm reminded of what Isaiah said. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. Messiah has arrived. Everyone there should have known. That's why he says on that Palm Sunday, you should have known this thou day when I would have been riding in here. Everyone should have been happy. Everyone should have been ecstatic about what has happened, occurred. And then John allows the shoe to drop. And that day was the Sabbath. Not good. He's walking. He's taking up his mat. I don't know if he's going home. No, he doesn't go there. He probably goes to the temple. It says in verse 10, the Jews, the religious authorities, therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. That was tradition. That's what Jesus came down here in the Jewish day to break. That was tradition. The law of Moses said you could carry it if something extraordinary had taken place. 
And that's what's happened here. But they didn't care about that. The legalist doesn't care about that. They believe in rules and regulations. I'm amazed that some people still think they can keep the Ten Commandments and they boast in the commandments, the big ten, just those, as if they keep them. Fool. You can't keep them. Never have, never will. That's why Jesus Christ had to come to keep them. You're self-deceived. You're deceiving yourself. Being a legalist. Yes, the Sabbath was there for man to enjoy, to rest, to enjoy their families, to worship God, to be reinvigorated. That's what the Sabbath was for. He gave it to man. God ceased his work. And an omnipotent God never tires or weary. He just says, hey, I stopped creating right here. And to inaugurate it, I want you guys to rest. Now, our Western culture, we don't mind resting. (laughs) But the Eastern culture, oh, they had a problem with it. They like to go get it. But still now, it's for us to rest here. Jeremiah 17, 21 says this. Jeremiah's a little upset. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates. But the context of that, Jeremiah didn't want business transactions to be going on. Rest. Take it easy. Remember God. Spend time with your family. Do those things. Nothing has changed here. We were made to worship. But the Pharisees, they turned this beautiful gift from God into a burden for everyone who was there to try to enjoy the Sabbath. These religious leaders, that's what they did. These these legalists, because that's who they were. Once again, Exodus 20:11 says this, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested Shabbat, ceased the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Take it easy. Enjoy yourselves. Tradition, they came up with 39 different categories. Just on that one section of Exodus 20:11. They had 11 chapters of what the Sabbath meant. Man, I mess up things. That's what happened. I'll give you a couple. One said if you injured yourself and you are bleeding, you could stop the bleeding by putting a tourniquet on it, but you couldn't put a bandage on it to secure it until after the Sabbath. One said if you were doing any kind of work, which you shouldn't have been doing it on the Sabbath anyway. But if you got a splinter in your eye, you could remove the splinter. But if the splinter was somewhere else, just giving you a hard time, like my little pinky finger, like they do, you had to wait until the Sabbath was over. One said, if you were, were, was wearing false teeth, wooden teeth, you couldn't put them in on the Sabbath. That was too much work. <laughs> now, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> They had all kinds of rules. Jesus said this, though. The greater 
than the Sabbath. In Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's what he's trying to tear down, to, to get this heavy burden off those who wanted to truly worship God. He's trying to take that load off of them. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked them, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? This blows me away. This dude has just been healed. They don't say anything about his healing, the miraculous healing, but they're worried about him carrying his mat on the Sabbath. To bring that in the 21st century, that would be, say, a neighbor of mine who's been uh, paralyzed for 40 years. And one Sunday morning around 545, I hear the blasphemous noise of a lawnmower. And I'm saying, what in the world is this? How insensitive can you be? And I grab my cell phone because I'm about to call 911 and I go to the front door and the dude who has been paralyzed for 40 years is out mowing his lawn. And I run to him and I say, don't you know it's the Lord's day? Don't you know it's Sunday? You should be at church. Put that lawnmower down and go back into the house. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. Didn't say anything. David, what happened, man? Who healed? What happened? Tell me what happened. No, I'm worried about you doing something that I think you shouldn't be doing. That's what Jesus is hurtling over, showing these legalistic people. What about compassion? What about mercy? What about grace? What about look and see what the Lord has done? Let's not overlook those things. That's what he's saying. But if not careful, that's what we do. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? That's all they care about. But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. That means he he was looking for him and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more. A lot of people, I I looked at a lot of different commentaries. I'm about to close and, and a lot of different things. And I prayed on this. It doesn't say the man was sinning. It doesn't say the man was in this condition because of a sin. I think Jesus is making a principle here. Once again, it goes back to original sin from Adam. That's where all sin come from. Because in chapter 9, oh yeah, we do sin. But if we were being punished for every sin we did, I would be a paralyzed man right now in a wheelchair speaking and may not even able to speak. Uh, And that would go for you too. My point is, because chapter 9, Jesus, the the, the disciples are going to say, look, this paralyzed man, Lord, who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus said, because of a great work I'm going to do, neither sin. So I don't know 
if this man was a, just a treacherous sinner? I don't know that. But Jesus is warning him. I saved you. I've healed you physically. That's good and well. But you still need me for something else. You need me for eternal life. Are you going to give me your life? Because we know in chapter 9, the guy gives him his life. The worship team can come up. He says, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. That worst thing is eternal death. The man departed and told Jesus that it was Jesus who had made him well. They say because he went to them and told them that it was Jesus, the man was upset with the small rebuke that Jesus gave them. I don't agree with that. He's just saying, hey, I found out this is the guy who healed me. That's what I'm thinking. We have been healed if we are born again, if we have given our lives to Jesus Christ. Are we doing what that woman at the well did? Are we even doing what the paralyzed man who was healed then did? Going and telling people. Or do we say, I've met my quota I've been saved 25 years, and I told at the beginning of my relationship with the Lord, I told many people about the Lord. So, Lord, we're equal now. I've I've, I've done enough. I don't think so. As long as we're here, listen to the Holy Spirit inside of us saying, speak to this guy, speak, speak to this girl, share your heart. Whatever endeavors we are doing, you guys. That's what this whole book of John is about. Ministry, discipleship, telling people about Jesus. He's did great things in our lives, and he will continue to do those things. But we must continue to seek him and put him first. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Lord, remind us, as only you can do, it's not about legalism. It's about relationship. It's about showing compassion and love because of what you've done for us. May we never become jaded. May we always have a heart of compassion for the lost, for the less unfortunate, and share Christ. We are his hands and feet. Because just like that great exchange that happened in our lives, May we be hungry to share with others that it will happen in theirs. We love you, Lord. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.